You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. I'm up here by myself now. This is a, maybe not the best scenario for this type of thing. Ask me a question, any question. <laughs> All right, ready. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for making it. Uh, So let's get into some questions. It has been almost a year since we've done this. Maybe we should do this a little sooner next time, but it was October 3rd, 2021, which was the last Q&A we've done. And at that time, we did take some questions from the audience. This time, we asked you to send them in, and I received several questions. I'm going to ask those to him here. This is a little bit like our podcast. If you have seen Pastor Richard's podcast, then you'll see that I'll ask him this question, and then he'll spend 10 minutes or so answering it and might follow up uh, here or there. And so that's what this format is. Yeah, it's not mine. It's ours. It's... So that's a fact. Yeah. You're the voice. This guy does a great so. job. Go ahead. All right. So, okay. So thinking about this church, every Sunday now, it seems like you are reading the church covenant here in front of the church. And there are people lined up here just like this morning affirming this covenant, which they have read ahead of time and have signed their name to. The first question has to do with a piece of that covenant. And I've got it here with me, the one that you read. And you say here, I understand that my responsibilities as a member of this church are to, number one, seek to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And then number two, and this is where the question really lies, number two, support the church with my regular attendance in worship, and then this phrase, and Bible study. So the question is this, how should a church member view his or her responsibility as a member when it comes to Sunday evening services, not the Sunday morning service? Hebrews 10, not to neglect the assembling of yourselves together, but how about Sunday evening services, ABF classes, other ministries of the church? So in other words, does the word Bible study in the covenant refer to a responsibility to regularly attend these other ministries according to our demographic? Yeah, as I hear that, I think we could have worded it better, but that will always be the case. So I would say What we want to do is interpret that and apply it in the way the elders intended it when it was first written. If you've been in our elder meetings for the past 24 years, you would know what I'm about to tell you is how we've always thought about it, which is we put an emphasis on the public worship service that we don't emphasize anything else like. So for 24 years, we would say, if you had to make a choice between being in ABF on Sunday morning or being in the worship service on Sunday morning, you be in the worship service on Sunday morning. Those two things are not on the same level. ABF class is not the same as corporate worship in the way that our elders have understood what is spiritually best for this congregation. This is a church that the worship services dictate the rest of its life, and the preaching of the Word of God stands at the head of that. And so it is a word-centered church, as you and I have talked about on our podcast. When we talk about singing, I love this, your definition of what ministry and song is to be, putting the Word of God in the mouths of the people of God for the glory of God. That's the ministry of the Word. And then we stand and we open the book together and we preach it. This is at the head of this church's life in ministry. So the corporate worship service takes priority over everything. In fact, when I first came to this church... Wednesday night was a utility night. This is going to tie into the Sunday evening question, so I'm getting there. But Wednesday evening was a utility night where you had all these different ministries going on. You had Awana ministry, you had ladies ministry, you had all these different things going on. And then we had a worship service at the same time. So while the worship service was taking place, all these other things were taking place. And one of the first ways that I sought to lead the church was to say, no, listen, if we're going to have a corporate worship service, it needs to be a priority for our people. So we'll find another time for all these other ministries. If we're going to meet together in a corporate worship service, it has priority. And I remember to make a point, the first sermon I preached as pastor of this church, I preached on a Wednesday night on purpose to say this is going to matter. And I preached standing on the floor with one row, I think, of maybe six deep. There weren't many people there. But I wanted to make a statement that corporate worship matters. Now, the New Testament does not tell us 
how many worship services to have a week. If you go to the book of Acts, the earliest part of the book of Acts, they were meeting every day. So it is an elder's decision. Our body of elders has to determine together what do we believe is the best for the health of this congregation. When we began to be a part of the seminary, knowing that myself and the other elders would have more of an investment required of us in terms of individual meetings with men and things of that nature, we chose to eliminate the midweek corporate worship service. I think in the first 18 years here, I was preaching three times a week, Wednesday night, Sunday morning, and Sunday night, which was really helpful, especially in those early years, to set a new course with respect to philosophy of ministry and things of that nature. Very helpful to have three times a week to meet with this church and just expound the Word of God. But because the Bible doesn't require us to have three corporate worship services a week, we made the choice as elders to eliminate the midweek service and to have two, Sunday morning and Sunday evening. When you choose to join a church and the elders of your church in shepherding your soul say, we believe that two worship services a week on the Lord's Day are important for the health and well-being of this congregation, then you, as a faithful member of this church, should care about both the morning service and the evening service. I tell you, I rejoice to look at this evening. This used to be Sunday morning about a year ago, a year and a half ago. So I rejoice in your faithfulness. And it ought to matter to you. As a church member, this is a part of Hebrews 13, 7 and 17. Hebrews 13, 7 talks about imitating those who set a good example for you as elders. Hebrews 13, 17 talks about being submitted to them because they watch for your soul and they're going to give an account. So faithful church members care about what the elders desire for them as they are engaged in watching for your soul and your spiritual health. So Sunday evening should matter to you. Now, we understand some people can't travel at night. We get that. Some people are coming to us from a long, long way away and can't make it back on Sunday. We understand that. So as good shepherds, we need to be understanding of the needs of our congregation and what each person, each family is facing. But you know, to live five miles from here and be sitting at home on Sunday evening when the church gathers, I'm going to be concerned about your spiritual desire. Why don't you want to be here? And so if you're looking at the church covenant and saying, okay, what things can I eliminate? I don't want to be there, so what can I eliminate? And still be within the boundaries of the rules. Your mindset is wrong. Now, let's talk about the Bible study element of that statement. Here's what we are saying as elders. It would be unhealthy for you to come, sit in a worship service, exit every week, and have no meaningful interaction with your church family. No one knows you. You don't know anyone. And the ABF ministry is one way that we take a church of about a 1,000 people and break it down into groups where we can actually know each other. It's one of the ways that we shepherd this church. So if you think about you know, shepherding downstream. We have 13 elders at the moment, I think. Good to know how many elders you have. I think we have 13. 13 elders. Well, how can 13 elders watch for 1,000 people? Just do the math. It's impossible. But when you have faithful deacons like we have, and we have a large number of deacons, and you have faithful ABF teachers like we have, and you have faithful children's ministry leaders, and faithful music ministry leaders. In other words, in every place where we have ministry going on, there should be a shepherding influence. So what we're really saying with that Bible study line is we want you involved in ministry at some level where someone knows you and you know someone so that you're not just showing up on Sundays, exiting, and that's the extent of your interaction with this church body. And I think if you care about that, just like if you care about Sunday evening services, you come. If you care about that, that we're striving to keep up with you and know you, and others need to know you, and you need to know others, it's not just about what you receive, it's about what you give, then where are you going to do that? Where are you going to make that investment? Where are you going to fit in? So maybe it's not possible for you to be here for ABF. There are reasons why that could be true. But then you need to find some place where you know someone and they know you and you're, you're getting that kind of life-on-life life shepherding taking place. So if I'm hearing you correctly, especially when you said something about spiritual nourishment, if someone is a member of the church and they are not regularly attending the Sunday morning worship service, 
that might eventually be a cause for discipline. It would, uh, it yes. Would be. But however, if someone is not regularly attending the Sunday evening service or maybe an ABF class, that is not. But we would be concerned for someone's spiritual well-being at the same time. I think that's true, Josh. I would add this. If someone is not coming on Sunday evenings, and they have no good reason not to be coming on Sunday evenings, eventually we're going to have a conversation about that because we love them. And it's concerning in terms of their spiritual desire. We used to joke about it, not because it's funny, but because it's sad. But it's amazing to watch someone who begins sitting in the front of the church, then they're sitting in the middle of the church, then they're sitting in the back of the church, then they're out of the church. And in the same sort of way, you watch as people were coming, you know, back when we had three services a week, they'd be here Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Then they were here Sunday morning, Sunday night. Then they were here Sunday morning. Then they weren't here. And so one of the ways that you can sort of take your spiritual pulse, how are you doing, is do I desire to be with God's people? And if I don't desire to be in a place where our king is worshipped, where the word of God is put in our mouths in song, where the word of God is open and exposited and taught, why? Why would a believer have no desire for those things? And just like a person in their physical health, you know, one of the evidences that you're unhealthy is you lose your appetite. What's going on in your spiritual life when you're beginning to lose your appetite? So these are important issues. And you can go back in church history. I mean, I think about Spurgeon. You can read the journals of their church meetings where people were disciplined for, quote, not being in their place. And what they're talking about is, kind of like us, season tickets. You know, you know where, everybody, where everybody sits. So when they're out in their place, where are they? They're absent. He's talking about being absent from the worship services. So this is a reason for discipline, unfaithfulness to Hebrews 10.25. Yeah, and I think, too, uh, how the book of Acts and the early church can be so instructive on this. There's so much there where it says that the people were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and yeah. to, to the Lord's Supper and baptism and the breaking of bread. And that, that word devoted kind of strikes me as they're all in on all the ministries of the church. Amen. That's right. Yep. Okay, next question. So uh, thinking about doctrinal distinctions, what doctrinal distinctions can someone disagree with us on and still be a member here? Nothing. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. It is spoken. All right. In other words, how do we draw the line of fellowship in our church versus some other evangelical church? Not talking about right. uh, outside of, of say, yeah. core doctrinal beliefs. So no, what, I understand. What, where's the line yeah. drawn? Yeah, all kidding aside. If you go through the church orientation class, which I exhort everyone to do that who hasn't done it. We talk about this very issue. So if you were to think about doctrine in three realms, core doctrine, non-negotiables. If you don't believe this, your very faith is in question. Okay, Those are deal breakers. Inerrancy of Scripture, deity of Christ, Salvation by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. These are core issues. That's one realm. Second realm, characteristic doctrine. That is, there are genuine believers who don't agree on these issues, but these doctrines are so characteristic of this congregation that if you don't believe these things, we have learned that it won't be long before you're unhappy with us. So, this is a church that believes in the sovereignty of God and salvation. You're going to hear it all over this congregation, no matter what you're involved in. If you're involved in ladies' Bible study, you're going to hear it sooner or later. If you're involved in an ABF class, you'll hear it. If you listen to sermons, you'll hear it. Conversations around this place. So that would be an example of a characteristic doctrine. Are there genuine Christians who have disagreed with us on the sovereignty of God and salvation. Yes, of course. Read about Wesley and Whitfield and how they cooperated in ministry. They were brothers, but they disagreed on that issue. And it is possible. I mean, if someone wants to sit in this church every week and be a faithful member of this church and not undermine the teaching of the pulpit and not undermine the teaching of the elders, and you don't agree on that, you are welcome here. We will love you. But that's how you have to live here in this family, right? In a way that's submissive to the doctrine of this church. And if you can't do that with joy, then you need to find a church you agree with. It is so characteristic of us. And there are more things than just that one issue. I'm just trying to give an example. Third area would be what we call charitable issues. And this is going to come down to things like 
how do you educate your children? So if you think about not just this church, but churches, there are issues that come up all the time that can cause division if you let those issues cause division. Education. Homeschool, private school, public school. You meet someone in the congregation, their child is in public school. Are you going to treat them like they're sinning? Because they've put their child in public school. You're not asking me, do I think they should or not? I'm saying they are the parents. They made that choice. How am I going to regard that? Health issues. This is a growing issue in churches. Traditional medicine versus more natural approaches to helping people with their health issues. Can we love each other when we disagree about those things? To some degree, politics. I'm not talking about issues that are morally clear in Scripture. Abortion is murder. There should be no doubt among us about that. But there are other political decisions where people could get in real conflict with each other. What we emphasize here is the need for liberty and just love each other and don't let those be reasons for division. Can I name a couple more things? Yeah, please. Okay. And feel free to shoot these down if, if yeah. you just don't want to talk about them. Sure. How about uh, a view on the millennium? So that's an interesting one. So it is not a deal breaker, but this is a church that our doctrinal statement declares we are premillennial. So what you can't do, so to answer your question, let me answer it and then I'm going to explain. Is that a deal breaker? No, it's not. In fact, we have people here who are amillennial in their view of eschatology. I hope we don't have anybody foolish enough to be post-millennial, okay? But maybe. Who knows? You see how even-handed we are with these, these things? How fair-minded we are. <laughs> but this is a church that's pre-millennial. You're going to hear it again and again in preaching, aren't you? You, you hear it. So, deal-breaker, of course not. But what you can't do is undermine the doctrine of this church. So what you can't do is have a home Bible study trying to convince everyone to be amillennial. You can't do that. So if you understand the church is the household of God, right? we're the family of God, there are household standards. And for a church to be unified, there has to be respect for that. And for there to be respect for that, Really what you're talking about is mature love. I'm amazed at the unity this church has known, knows right now, and has known for years and years and years. And I attribute it to mature love because there are good brothers and sisters who disagree about all sorts of things, but we love each other and we don't make those reasons to divide. And so what we focus on is what we hold in common. And my goodness, that so far outweighs anything we disagree about. We're talking about, you know, in the realm of orthodoxy. That we can keep our eyes fixed right there and love each other well. And that's actually a testimony. Unity is not uniformity. And if unity for you requires uniformity at every point, then you don't understand what unity is. Spiritual gifts. Again, so now we're talking about cessationism versus continuationism. You can hold a continuationist view. Can't undermine the doctrine of this church. And you have to understand, the reason why I say that is in my heart of hearts, as the pastor teacher of this church, and I believe this is true, I think I speak for my fellow elders on this, you can't talk about any doctrinal issue that doesn't have some practical result, either for someone's spiritual health or the potential for a lack of health. I cannot embrace a wrong view of something and not be affected by it in some way. One of my heroes in the faith in terms of preaching, Martin Lloyd-Jones. I love Martin Lloyd-Jones. Read his preaching on Romans. Read his preaching on Ephesians. Fantastic preacher, fantastic pastor. He misunderstood spirit baptism. He did. And it's not benign. It left Westminster wide open for R.T. Kendall who came in later with the Toronto blessing thing. Wild, charismatic doctrine. So that hold 
in his doctrinal viewpoint, actually left that congregation vulnerable. So there are none of these things we could discuss that I think we could say there's no practical effect to this. There's always a practical effect, some greater than others. I mean, what we all have to agree on is the second coming of Christ. If we're not looking for a visible bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are on division ground. But none of the views that you and I are talking about tonight would disagree about that. So we can put our focus there and agree. We're all looking for the return of Jesus. And that makes a difference, and that has a practical effect, doesn't it? Because First John says that we purify ourselves as we're looking for the return of Christ. So if you were to deny that, the very holiness of the believers at stake, so all these things have practical effects, and that's why I won't say they don't matter. They do matter. And I think continuationism has especially been impactful in hurting people. But if you're a submissive person, you have a submissive heart to the doctrine of this church, and you can hold your views personally, we're going to love you. And uh, you, you love this congregation. We're glad you're here. Glad you're sitting under the Word every week. Glad you're serving the Lord here. We love you. But what cannot happen in this church family is an undermining of the church's doctrine. Amen. Yes and amen. That's a good segue, actually, uh, mentioning Martin Lloyd-Jones into a question we did receive. When people come here, they're often very interested in not just the preaching ministry here, but even you personally. Like, how did you come to be a good preacher of the Word of God? This question is, are there others that you kind of modeled your preaching ministry after? Or maybe what are just some other pastors and preachers over the year that you have admired, and what are the characteristics of those that are important to being a good preacher in the church? I don't think it's any secret. The man who influenced me more than any other was John MacArthur. I think there is sort of a process that young preachers go through. It's analogous to other things that you learn in life. Darren and I both love sports. He, ha he actually had a professional baseball career in the minor leagues for a while. But when you first begin learning hitting, it's not unusual to mimic someone else to see what they're doing and model yourself after what they're doing. But eventually you find your own swing, right? And so when you start off early in the ministry, it's not unusual that you admire certain things you see in another preacher and you pick up certain things that, that they do that are, are done well. But no preacher should be an artificial representation of another. I'm not John MacArthur. I'm not Charles Spurgeon. I'm not anybody else. I'm me. And so eventually, and, and I think it's pretty early on, you, you realize that. And you, so what you want is for the Lord to make you the best you He can make you. Lord, do your work in me so that I'm a faithful servant with whatever gifts and abilities you've given me. What I admired in MacArthur and the reason why he had my attention early is I just had a sense, and I hate to use that as a cessationist, but I had a sense... Just in listening to this man's ministry, this is a man who submitted his own mind to Scripture. In other words, no agenda. What does the Bible say? That's what I will submit my mind and heart to, and that's what I will declare. Whatever it costs me. And whatever it means for us as a church. And when you come in contact with that, it's a, it's a different flavor. It is a, a different flavor, and I knew it. And so as a young man, very young man, I mean, I, I was in vocational ministry when I was 19 years old. So as a very young man, as I began to hear MacArthur preach, I just recognized that this is someone who's different. And it was that aspect that not only resonated with my own heart, but then you say, okay, I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to see the truth in Scripture so that I'm not reading my views onto the Bible, I want to read truth out of the Scriptures and then just deliver that as faithfully as, as I can. And that means I'm not preaching on it. I'm preaching under it. I'm as subject to what I'm preaching as anybody who's hearing me. And we all must bow to what it says. And in fact, when you talk about a new church plan or you talk about when I came here, if you're talking about a, a church reformation, as it were, I think that's the beginning point for any congregation the sufficiency of Scripture. Will we believe the Bible? And once that is established in the life of a congregation, every other domino falls because now all we have to do is demonstrate the Bible teaches this and we're all subject to it, bound by our consciences. Because the Bible says it, we believe it. 
And if we believe it, then we, we must strive to practice it. And so when I heard that in his ministry, and of course, then as you learn about a faithful man like that, he informs you about other faithful men who embody the very same convictions. And then eventually what you learn is these convictions flow out of the New Testament itself and out of those apostles who were the foundation for the church. So this isn't a John MacArthur thing or name, name your faithful, faithful pastor, your favorite faithful pastor. This is actually um, a faithful man passing on to faithful men who will then pass on to faithful men the things that we're learning. It goes all the way back to the apostles. If the Bible is inerrant, it is God's Word, it is to be submitted to, it is authoritative, and it is sufficient. And so my task is to simply say what it says. And I think also one of the things I would just add that I appreciate about MacArthur's ministry and wanted to embody, by God's grace if I could, straightforward, simple, uncomplicated, to the truth. doesn't mean shallow, dig deep, dig deep. But you're not preaching to impress. You're preaching to feed. And that's what I wanted to live out, if the Lord would allow me to do it. So you practice what we might call verse-by-verse exposition. Where does that idea come from? I think it comes from the, the knowledge of this is how the Bible was given to us. It's like anything else. If you walk up on a conversation that's midstream, it's going to take you a little while to figure out what they're talking about. You've walked up out of context. And so if you live your life in a church where you're hopping around from passage to passage to passage, you're never going to see the Bible as God means for you to see it, which is as it's given to us right, in consecutive thought process. You walk through the book of Scripture like we study it together, and it's amazing, isn't it, how a particular chapter comes into such clear focus for you, a chapter you've read for years and years, but now you're hearing it on the heels of the previous chapters. I'm thinking about Romans 7. As we walk through Romans 7 together a few years ago now, but Romans 7, I don't think you can preach it rightly unless you've preceded it with those first six chapters. Now Romans 7 makes sense in its context. And if I just lift that out and try to convince you of what I saw in Romans 7, you would say, no, I don't see that. But I talked to so many people who walked through those first six chapters with us, and they go, wow, I see that. And it's because of the foundation that was laid before. So this is how God gave us His Word, not in snippets, but in larger contexts. And as we study it in that way, we have a better understanding of the Bible. And that's really our task as shepherds is to feed God's people with God's Word to help God's people know the Scriptures. And you can't do that if your teaching is haphazard. In addition, it helps the preacher not avoid uncomfortable subjects. It also helps the congregation know he doesn't have an agenda. Whenever I do what I did this morning, you preach a sermon out of order, the first thought everybody has is, what's going on? <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> okay, There's nothing going on. All right, except it was on my heart this week. There's, there's no issue. There's, there's nothing going on. But I have to convince you of that, even tonight, don't I? I have to convince you. There's nothing going on. So when you preach consecutively, you can't skip that. You know, people are going to notice it. Why didn't you talk about those verses? But also, I've been amazed, amazed, astounded at how often, as you're preaching consecutively, something does arise in the life of a congregation just as you've hit that section. And so God in His providence, and sometimes you've taken breaks like I took this morning, so the arrival time, you can't explain except by God. And here we are at this text, at this time in the life of our church. Do we recognize God is speaking to us? Do we recognize He's involved with our congregation? His hand is on us. I've talked to Bible study teachers around this church again and again. We dealt with that passage this morning. We just talked about We just taught that. So our God is at work throughout this congregation, not just from the pulpit, weaving things together in such a way that we're learning truth uh, from His Spirit, which is what you desire. Yeah, that's good. And I've heard so many 
people, not necessarily about our church, but maybe, you know, kind of point the finger, this church doesn't, or that pastor doesn't address this topic or doesn't address that topic. And I've actually heard you respond to those before to say, I did address that topic when I preached through Ephesians or when I preached through this book or yeah. that book. And Lord willing, we might get there again. But for now, we're just going to continue yeah. saying Matthew. Yeah, I had someone message me this week and ask me, have you done any sermons on the Lord's Supper or on baptism? And I just messaged back and said, if you find the text and then go to Sermon Audio, there's probably something there. And what an encouraging thing to my own heart to be able to answer it that way. Wherever you find a text that addresses those subjects, go to that text. And we dealt with it if we were in, the, in those verses. Yeah, 2,500 or so sermons on Sermon Audio, which is really astonishing. And even when you said earlier that you preached Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday, my first thought is, how in the world do you do that? And I was here when you were doing that, of course, for several years, and it was a wonderful experience, of course, but it must be a great challenge. I guess we're... Um, I'm actually thankful to be down to two now. Down to two. Okay. Yeah, it's yeah. helpful. Yeah. I'm not going to say me too, but... Yeah. But you are. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Get myself in trouble. So let's go to a theological question. This is a good one. This comes up regularly. We may have even asked it in a forum like this before. But of course, the topic of predestination can be difficult to sort out. Not just difficult to sort out in our minds, even really need to know the scriptures well to know uh, how to speak on this topic rightly. So this question on that topic, do you believe people can change and God will provide a real opportunity, his calling for us to choose salvation or... Was the book of life already written in full, and it was predestined that he would not provide a good opportunity or ministry receiving his calling and salvation to all? I'm not sure I entirely understand the question, but... Do you have an opportunity to choose salvation, or was the Lamb's book of life written before the foundation of the world, and there wasn't really an opportunity to salvation? Salvation was determined before we were born. Salvation was determined before we were born. Romans 8, 28-30 makes that a clear as a bell. But human responsibility is real. And every believer in this place can say truthfully that you chose Jesus. You can say that and it's true. You can say that you obeyed the gospel and it's true. You did. What we know from Scripture, however, is you were able to choose Jesus and you were able to obey the gospel because of God's grace, because of what He did in your soul. Second Corinthians 4, His light was shined into your heart, giving you the knowledge of His glory in the face of His Son. Regeneration precedes faith in terms of the order of salvation. John 3, Jesus told Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of heaven, can't see the kingdom of God, can't enter it. So regeneration precedes faith. It is true to say in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, that all of salvation is by grace. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. He didn't just predestine your salvation. He predestined your sanctification that would follow your justification on into glorification, all of it predestined by God. And yet human responsibility is real. So if you talk about good opportunities, understand all it takes for a man to be responsible is general revelation. This is why we are commanded to go with the gospel to the ends of the earth. What about the person living out in so-and-so place that they've never received a Bible, they've never heard the name of Jesus, they've never heard the gospel, all they have is the light of general revelation. They are responsible by virtue of general revelation. And know this, that man responds to general revelation in a way that demonstrates he's a sinner. Which is why when you go to these places that are under-evangelized, what do you find? You find idolatry. Because that's what men are by nature. They are idolaters. So instead of responding to the light and general revelation, understanding the wisdom of God, the majesty of God, the power of God, Men try to reduce God into the form of something they can make with their hands or they can make with their minds. That is a rejection of the revelation you have, generally speaking. Look up into the heavens and tell me you can reduce him to a piece of wood or to something that looks like you 
thinks like you, believes like you. So even man's response to general revelation demonstrates his guiltiness. And what we see in Scripture is if a man responds positively to the light God gives him, God gives him more. God is just. He is good and He is just. We have to admit, I talked about recently in a sermon, the the element of mystery here. If you think you're going to get your mind entirely around the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, you won't. So what all brought eventually, Romans 9, is to the place of a child, childlike faith. Who are you to answer back to God? You've asked all your questions. I've given you the answers that you're capable of receiving. One question too many. Just close your mouth. God is God. You are not. And He's trustworthy. And He's good. So trust Him. And that goes to so many other issues. So many questions we have. Even those of us who have fully embraced the sovereignty of God and salvation, we have questions. Maybe one of you has an unbelieving child. And you think, if they perish without Christ, how will heaven be heaven for me? Don't you have to just rest that in the hands of God and know that it's going to be okay? I don't know entirely how it's going to be okay. I know this that when we see Him as He is, we're going to be conformed to His image in a way we're not right now. And that means greater capacities to see things and embrace things that we can't at this moment. So you're not called to embrace it at this moment and with the same capacity you'll have when you're glorified. You're called to believe Him. So believe Him. And rest in His goodness and His sovereignty and His wisdom. What God does is right. And, uh, and He's a God of love. He takes no delight in the perishing of sinners. Is that true? It's true. And so we can believe it. Good. All right, thank you for that. So I'm going to try to zip through some other questions because our time is running short. So one here, what are your thoughts about the role of the local church versus the individual believer with regard to supporting ministries outside the church? Whether they're evangelistic, like foreign domestic or local missionaries, or even social needs, food banks, homeless centers, orphanages, pregnancy centers. What role is there between the local church or maybe the individual believer in regard to those things? Can I do this just because that particular answer is going to be linked here? Maybe we can move to another one. We recently dealt with that on the Straight Truth podcast. I mean, like this last season of them. Hard pass. Hard okay. Yeah. Watch that. <laughs> I'm not trying to. There redirect. are several. Yeah, there are yeah. several that you, we've even touched on today that we have done podcasts on. Even you were mentioning the services on Sunday. We did have a question once of why do we have two services on Sunday, and yeah. we spent you know ten minutes or so discussing that. But that particular one, I thought we did have a discussion yeah on that. a lengthy discussion on that. Check the podcast. Okay, straighttruth.net. There it is. Okay, another question here. This person writes that they're. I'm not going to say any names, of course, but. This family writes that they are deeply appreciative of our church. They come from a charismatic background and uh, suffered terrible teaching about hearing the voice of God in your own mind. Yeah. So what is the difference between hearing God's voice and having the Lord put something on your heart? The difference is, when you talk about hearing God's voice, it implies that He speaks today. Speaks. He's giving verbal communication. I don't mean audible even. I just mean like giving communication that can be discerned in terms of words in a way outside of Scripture. And God is not doing that. So that's one distinction. We talk about something being on our hearts. We're talking more about just a desire. Really, at the end of the day, a desire that you believe is in keeping with something that would please the Lord. So there are principles by which you measure these things. I think someone asked me in the parking lot headed out today, very similar question. I know God speaks in Scripture. I know Scripture is His Word. I know you're going to tell me, go to the Bible. But what do we do when we don't have a black and white statement in Scripture about something? How do I know if this is God's will or not for me? So it's a very similar question. And I think the way you measure that is you measure it by biblical principles. Is there anything in what I'm desiring to do that doesn't accord with Scripture? If anything doesn't accord with Scripture, you have your answer. Am I submitted to the Lord with the rest of my life? Can I say that my ambition above everything is to please Him in this? So if I'm delighting myself in the Lord, 
He gives me the desires of my heart, but those aren't selfish desires if I'm delighting myself in Him. They're, they're desires that come from Him I can trust if what I'm wanting to do is in accordance with biblical principles. So the way I walk through it in my own life is, does anything about what I'm wanting to do violate Scripture? If so, I don't do it. Is it in keeping with things that I know are good from Scripture? If the answer is yes, that's a good indication. Can I honestly say my motive here is pure as best I know myself? What I want to do is please the Lord in this. The answer is yes, and I have a desire to do it. I'm free. I'm free not to, and I'm free to do that. So I don't invest too much authority in those impressions. Like, truly, this morning I could have decided to go on in our study of Matthew, and it would have been perfectly fine. Instead, I chose to do what I did out of 2 Corinthians 10, and it was perfectly fine because I wanted to. And I thought it would be good for the congregation. I thought it would be a good sort of hand-in-hand piece with the sermon on legalism. And I wanted to do it. And so I have learned as I walk with the Lord, sometimes I can pay attention to those kinds of desires. There's a reason for them sometimes. I can't tell you how many times I've made a switch like this and someone comes later and they say, that was exactly what I needed today. And I'm just so grateful for when that happens. So, But don't invest too much authority in any of that or you're going to be misguided. The only thing you can invest authority in is Scripture. So this is where God speaks. If you want to hear God speak out loud, read your Bible out loud, someone has said, right? And you'll hear Him speak out loud. This is where God speaks. But in terms of impressions, for me, that's desires. And I measure those things by Scripture and by my commitment to a singular ambition, which I don't live out perfectly, but that's where I want to be that whether at home or absent, I would do what pleases Christ. So is my motivation for changing on Sunday morning sermon, I want to please Christ. Is my motivation the good of this congregation? Is there some other motive at work? Best I can know myself, there's not. I want to do it. So that's what I'm going to do. So do feelings play at all into that? I mean, if I say, okay, I'm being sensitive to the Spirit of God, and that is a sensitivity that understands the Word of God to be true, that has the Word of God flooding my heart and mind, yeah. and emotions, right? And so do feelings play a role in that? I feel a certain way. I mean, we may express it that way. I'm not one who believes that we should nullify the emotional element of the Christian life. We have feelings. Feelings are not necessarily evil, but those feelings have to be submitted to truth or you're going to be all over the map. Your feelings, even when you think you're having an impression, your feelings can be just dead wrong. And you have a few experiences that demonstrate that to you, and you'll stop investing too much authority in your feelings. So I'll give you an example. You see someone, and they seem troubled, and you're concerned about them, and you have a feeling they may not be doing well, and then you go ask them, and you find out they were sick. or you I mean, it wasn't what you thought it was. It was something else. And so you sort of back up and go, that's just a good reminder to me that my feelings are just untrustworthy. So... I'm not afraid to act on something I desire to do, but I just I try not to ever invest it with too much authority. It could be right, it could be wrong. What I want to be guided by is the Word of God. My feelings are fickle, and I don't trust them. I trust Scripture. Yeah, that's challenging, though, because we mostly make, well, I don't know if this is correct statement to say, but we make a lot of decisions based on how we feel about things, even approaching the person you just gave an example of, not necessarily by some objectivity. We say, I feel this certain way and therefore I act on it. I reflect back. I'd been here, I guess, about 10 years. And everything I'd ever done in ministry up to that point had been either starting something new or being involved in the Lord's reforming something. It's all I'd ever known. And so when I'd been here about 10 years, new constitution and bylaws, plurality of elders, I felt like the church was at a place where there was submission to Scripture, seemed to be in a healthy condition. And so I began to wonder, what's next? Where else am I supposed to go? And right about that time, I was contacted by a church that was in need of reform. They had had a history with Calvinism. They had lost touch with that history. So they were looking for someone to come in and reestablish that and sort of leading a reformation. If I told you all the circumstances surrounding that, it would amaze you from the standpoint of circumstances it seemed like were coming together 
where it looked like, yeah, we should go, and actually walked through an entire process where they voted and asked me to come. And I sat down with my knowledge of Scripture and said, God didn't make shepherds to just move them around over and over and over again. Until it is abundantly clear, I just need to marry this congregation, so to speak. And so denying all those circumstances, like I said, there were extenuating circumstances that I can't go into, but even denying feelings at some level within my family, I uh, trusted the instrumentation of Scripture. I'm staying. And I look back now, 14 years, and I'm so grateful I stayed. So glad. I've learned so many things as a result of just staying put. And we are too. Yeah. Grateful you stayed. Amen. So anyway, all that to say, I wouldn't trust my feelings. Yeah, okay. wouldn't trust my All right, so uh, just a few more minutes here. So what I'm going to do, let's do a lightning round. So the, what this is, is that I'll ask you like a series of questions. <laughs> just give me like a quick answer, maybe not like a lengthy one. And we'll... <laughs> I'm hearing you. I'm, I'm hearing you. <laughs> Go ahead. Lightning round. All right, number one, do you pray for the Dallas Cowboys? Yes, no. <laughs> no, I do not. Does it work? Yes, no. <laughs> no, apparently not. <laughs> If I have been, they've been ineffectual, yes, of late. Okay, just kidding. Okay, so more serious questions. Okay. okay. Can a person rationally explore the world, meaning like in nature, mm. and arrive at the existence of God? Arrive at the existence of God? Yes. Yes. I mean, just look around you. That's why I said you have to deny general revelation to be an atheist or an agnostic. And not just the revelation around you, but the revelation within you. God has put within His creatures, man, the knowledge that He is. So you can discover that God is by just walking outside tonight and looking up. How should some respond to a sermon when they feel, well, this doesn't really apply to me right now? I would ask, what doesn't apply to you? Yeah, tell me what doesn't apply to us. It always applies to us. Because if it doesn't apply to you, let's take an example. I'm a 12-year-old young person and the sermons on marriage. They say, it doesn't apply to me. Oh, wait a second. If you live long enough, you're going to get married? You can be preparing right now by how you learn these truths. Are you going to be talking to people who have beliefs about marriage? Does the church's belief about marriage matter, not just when it comes to married people, but single people? Does that matter? Are you living in a culture that is far astray on the subject of marriage? So just using that one example, there's not a sermon from God's Word ever that doesn't apply to us in one way or another. Can we use pictures and depictions of Jesus in teaching young children who cannot yet read? Or shouldn't we do that? Yeah, I'm not one who... Uh, I'm, this is now an opinion. This is first opinions. I'm not going to slam someone who uses a picture Bible. But if God wanted to leave an image of His Son in our minds, He would have given us one. And so I think sometimes it is better not to introduce those things and let people know God by what He's revealed about Himself, not try to depict the Son of God in ways He never gave us as revelation. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have and yet believed. believed. Yep. Are Catholics believers in Christ? Well, I think I'm going to ask what you mean by Catholics. So, uh, Roman Catholic Church. No, I, knew, I knew that part. What I'm saying is, yeah, I got that part. What I meant is, Someone sitting in a Catholic church or someone who embraces Roman Catholic doctrine. The second one. Yeah. If you embrace Roman Catholic doctrine, then you deny the gospel of grace, which means you're crucifying Jesus afresh, which means you are not a believer. Is physical abuse a reason for divorce? Can be. Can be. First Corinthians 7.10 envisions a wife who chooses to leave her husband the reasons are not specified. There are untenable situations. Physical danger to a woman would be one of those, in which case she is counseled to either remain single or else be reconciled to her husband. She's not disciplined in 1 Corinthians 7.10. She's not condemned. But she's exhorted to stay with her husband. But if she doesn't, 
remain single or else be reconciled to her husband. So that envisions situations that are untenable. And as you know, the longer you shepherd people, the more you realize you come face to face with situations that as sad as it is, we're living in a sinful, broken world. God hates divorce, true. But there are situations that it is better for people to live in peace than to try to maintain a marriage with an unbeliever. Is abandonment a reason for divorce? Same answer. Yeah, First Corinthians 7. Okay, last question here. Can you join a church deciding only to stream the services rather than being physically present? It would depend. So the one situation I could envision saying yes to that would be a shut-in, someone who is physically unable to get here, but they understand the importance of the local church. They understand the importance of elders watching for their soul. They long for that kind of oversight and shepherding. They just physically cannot be here then we would have responsibilities as a congregation to include them and in some way keep up with them and minister to them. What if they needed to be baptized? I've actually seen that situation. We baptized a man one time in a swimming pool that you would have thought to be physically incapable, but the deacons actually carried him down into the water and helped him through the entire process because he so desired to follow the Lord and believe his baptism. Yeah. All right, I think that concludes our time together. Uh, Great. Thank you, Renee. Yeah, thanks. Let's pray together and go home. Father in heaven, thank you for the time we've had together tonight. What a sweet time. Thank you, Lord, for the men and their families who are part of Expositors. Continue to bless that ministry. Continue to bless this congregation as it ministers to those men. Lord, thank you for Pastor Darren, for Cornerstone, and the marvelous work you have done and are doing there. And thank you for the joy of this congregation. Lord, the sweet privilege Josh and I have and the other elders have to serve this church. Lord, may you watch over us all. May you keep us, Lord, in a way that protects us and maintains us pursuing holiness. And Lord, would you make use of this congregation for your great namesake in a way that magnifies the Son of God. And we ask this in Jesus' name.